Last week, as we looked at Luke's purpose for writing the book of Acts, we kind of went back to Luke part one. We went to the gospel of Luke, and we looked at why he wrote the book of Luke in the first place. He said that he was taking it on himself to write an orderly account to his friend Theophilus. And we know that that name actually means lover of God. He wrote to this man all that happened in the life of Jesus. He said, I want to write an orderly account. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm an engineer, so I like orderly accounts of things. I like the way that Luke writes. He's very detailed. And some people might even say he shares too many details, but I, I can't have enough details. And so as I read the beginning of the book of Acts and notice that Luke wrote it, I'm excited because he's going to give us all the details that we need to know concerning the beginning of the church. And we looked at his interaction, Jesus' interaction with those whose path that he crossed, as well as those who were his followers. And his main purpose was to give an orderly account of all that Jesus, Luke being the writer, gave an orderly account in of all that Jesus both began to do and to teach. That's what Acts chapter 1 says. And so it would seem reasonable to us that the idea of Luke writing Luke part 2, or what we call it, Acts, and in many of your Bibles it probably says the Acts of the Apostles. But I like to put a little, I put a little line on mine because the titles aren't really inspired by God. Uh, I call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's really the Acts of what the Holy Spirit is going to do in those that are following Jesus. He's going to empower them to live a bold life that's a witness to Jesus Christ. And so it would seem reasonable to us that this book um, would be to give an orderly account of all that Jesus continued to do. If, If he's writing it, and he wrote his former account in Luke of all that Jesus began to do, then Acts would just be a continuance of that, that God isn't dead, He's not, he is still working, and the idea is, is that now he's going to continue to do the work that his father sent him to do, but now he's going to do it in a new way. He's going to send his Holy Spirit to dwell in you and I as believers, and then empower us to be a witness to the world. And so that's important to see. So that's kind of the whole pattern for the book of Acts. It's the beginning of the church, but I want you to notice that, um, and as we study through it, you'll see that the, the outline of the book, you can find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says there that they were called to be a witness and to proclaim the truth to those in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It was kind of like an epicenter. Jerusalem was where it started, and that's where it began. But from that point on, there's this ripple effect that takes place out from that epicenter, kind of like an earthquake. And God is basically using his disciples to shake up literally the world. Now, to us, this seems like an insurmountable task, but to the Lord, this is a small thing. It's amazing to me that God would even think about you and I, but the fact that He thinks about everyone on the earth in the same way. Think about people with their children, there's always a favorite. Well, God doesn't have favorites. He loves each one of us, and He wants to have a relationship with you and I, and He wants to do it not based on what we think is good about us, but just due to the fact that He loves us. He chose us. He knew us while we were being formed in our mother's womb. And so God, wanting to reach every person in the entire world, decides to use you and I. Now, I don't get that. Why doesn't God just take and put a big megaphone on the moon and just shout through it, hey, Jesus is Lord, surrender to Him. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't even shout, I love you. 
have a relationship with me. What he does is he says, sends people that have been saved by his grace to proclaim that God loves you. I know because he first loved me. And then we go and share that same message. But we see this pattern where he said, go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we'll see that as an outline for the overall book in chapters one through eight of Acts. It'll show us the witness of the church inside of the city of Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12 will chronicle the witness in Judea and Samaria, which is a surrounding area. And then from chapter 13 through 28, it will give us an account of the witness to the end of the earth, to Rome. So what we'll see is at the beginning, we'll kind of have the chronicles of what Peter did and what happened inside of the Jerusalem church into the surrounding areas, because Peter was called to the, be the apostle to the, to the Jews. And then we'll see the, the chronicles of, of Paul as he's been given the uh, opportunity to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to you and I. That's why we ended up hearing it, because somebody shared it with Paul, who at the time, and we'll read this later, was kind of a terrorist to the church. And so, but what we need to realize is that this book is not completely finished. I think it's oftentimes misunderstood that, okay, well, Scripture has all been written, and so what God wants to do is over. But the reality is, is that the book of Acts is not completely finished. No doubt we have 28 chapters here in our Bible to study, but what we must keep in mind is that Jesus' disciples are still being empowered by the Holy Spirit today to be witnesses to their Jerusalem. Ours here would be the Ironton surrounding area. The Arcadia Valley would be our Samaria and then the county would be kind of our Judea and Samaria, and then to the outer reaches. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll all be called to go and be, you know, witnesses or, or uh, missionaries to a foreign country. But you might get terms, times to do that on a short term. In my short stint as a Christian, I've gotten to go to India. And I know people that have gotten to go to Thailand. And I know people that have gone to Mexico. And so God's What God wants us to know through the book of Acts here is that the Christian church is not one church. The church, big C, is the body of Christ universally. All those who call upon the name of Jesus for their salvation and they work it out in fear and trembling as they submit to reading the scriptures, to praying with one another, and to growing in grace by just getting to know the Lord and sharing that with other people and getting with other Christians and fellowshipping and learning how he's worked in their lives. And that's what we'll see in the book of Acts. But in our reading today, before any of that can begin, Jesus has told the disciples that they're to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power. And I talked about just briefly last time that the word there for power is the Greek word dunamis, which kind of sounds like our word, and it is where we get the idea of our word dynamite. If you think about dynamite blowing up, That kind of explosive action is kind of the power he's talking about here. So before they are to go and tell, which is oftentimes what we hear from the pulpit, go out and share your faith. They're to wait together and pray. And we underestimate the power of prayer, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. But that's what they are instructed to do first and foremost. And I remember if any of you were with us when we were studying through the book of Mark, the apostles were called to, number one, be with Jesus, and number two, be sent by Jesus. And so the same pattern is found here. So Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, 
and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So, the main message that these angels give these disciples who just watched their Savior, their Master, their Lord, the one they've given up their lives to follow, he's now going to leave them, and he's ascending into heaven. And as he goes into heaven, they see it happen. He's not a ghost, he's a person. During his time when he was resurrected, while he walked amongst them for 40 days, they were able to touch him. They were able to shake hands with him. They were able to see him eat food. We know that from scripture. And so when, he, when they say to them, he will return in like manner, what, he's, what they're saying is he, will, he went to heaven in a body and he will return to earth in a body. He will come in like manner. And we also see that he will return amidst the clouds just as he left. And so their me- the angel's message to the disciples is, why do you, why do you stare up into the clouds? He's, gonna, he's coming back. It's kind of like when I was growing up, uh, my parents would go away for a day and they'd say, I, w- I got this list of chores for you to do. And of course, as boys, we would tend to get a little distracted and want to watch TV or do this or that, go ride the four-wheelers. But we had to have those chores done by the time our parents got back. Well, what made us want to get those chores done was the fact that they promised they would be back. And if we didn't get the chores done, we would probably be in trouble. Well, that's not the point with the Lord. But the point is, is that he's coming back and he's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge every individual based on the truth that they've received. Have they received Jesus? That's really the crux of, of everything that Jesus came to do. What have you done with my son is what the father will say. And so, He's given them a mission. Go and proclaim the good news. Jesus came for salvation for all who would receive him. So he's told this to the disciples. So it's just not about them receiving that truth. It's about them doing something about it to tell everyone else as well. Because if you don't tell anyone else, it just says you don't care. It's all about you. And the Lord is never making it about us. He's making it about his glory. And so for other people to find out and to receive the same forgiveness of sin and, and just breaking of the chains of sin, that was Jesus' purpose for everyone else too. So he will return. But we see this same theme in Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to turn there to chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. <clears throat> now, I cheated. Um, I actually put the page number. So if you have my exact Bible, it's page 784. It's not likely, right? But he said, I was watching in the night visions, Daniel, being a prophet, and, uh, and he explains that during one of his visions, he got a vision of the Lord. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel found out that 
Jesus, this, this Messiah that was going to come, he didn't know it was Jesus, but he knew that it would be a Messiah. When he came, he would come with the clouds of heaven. But that wasn't his first coming, obviously, because his first coming, he came, he was born of a woman. And so the second time when he comes, not only will he come on the clouds, but he will, he will be given a kingdom and he will, he, will, he will stand at the helm of that kingdom and he will have dominion and a kingdom that will last forever. And so when he comes and sets up his earthly physical kingdom, then he will judge the nations. And so the reality is, is that we need to be ready for that. We need to take as many people into that kingdom as we can. But then we also see the same theme in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 27. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, had told them, he said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be quickly. And then verse 30 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see, they will see, physically see with their eyes, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so, uh, and then my last reference will be in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. where it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So all throughout Scripture, we see this theme of when Jesus returns, it will be coming amidst the clouds. But the reality is, is that, number one, his return will be on the clouds, and number two, it will be visible to all. Now, many people have said, and there are organizations, religious organizations, that say, well, Jesus already returned. But if he returned, if the Messiah returned, then we would all know it. We would all see it. It won't be something that's mistakable for something else. Like, that was just a shooting star. We'll know it was Jesus because all the nations will recognize him. Our eyes will be open. And so Jesus has told these disciples what they're to do. They're to go and spread the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. There will be accountability with what we've done with the truth that he's shown us. Go and tell the world that you've heard me, what you've heard me say and seen me do. His message, I'm not dead, I'm alive. And they follow him to the Mount of Olives and then he ascends. And after they can no longer see him, they stay there staring at the clouds and these angels show and ask them, why are you staring? Why are you looking up at the clouds? What are, you, what are you cloud gazing? What are you looking up for the stars? He's coming back. Why don't you get to what he's given you to do? And so uh, we see there, uh, we'll go to verse 12. He says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these, these men, all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. 
So you see that list of individuals that are named there, and you might recognize them. These are the same that were of the twelve that were with Jesus during his earthly ministry for the three years. But notice there's one missing. There's one Judas called Iscariot, and, and he is no longer with them, and we'll read about that here shortly. So these men, in obedience to what they've been told, he's going to return, in obedience and anticipating the coming of the Spirit upon them that they were told about, we studied that last week, they gather together in the upper room. Now many assert that this upper room is the same room that they gathered in when they had the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted the the bread and the wine. And then uh, possibly this is the same room where Jesus had appeared twice to them as they had gathered. He showed them his physical body. This is where we have that text where uh, Doubting Thomas, as we've named him, although I think he was just, you know, yeah, he's Doubting Thomas, but how many times do we have the same thing? We, we doubt something the Lord shows us. Um, so I can relate to Doubting Thomas, if you want to call him that. But this is the room that he also appeared to them twice in John chapter 20, verse 19, and then in verse 26 in that same chapter. And this is also possibly the place where the Holy Spirit will come upon them, more than likely, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. But wherever this was, this was no small upper room. I don't know about you guys, but every time I've heard about the upper room in Scripture, or this particular upper room even, I've kind of imagined this kind of attic-y space where they, like, they just had enough room, they're like, hey, you can use our attic to, to hang out together. But then it says there in verse 15 that there were 120 people gathered there who were like-minded. It must have been a large enough room to accommodate every one of them. I live in a house that's 100 years old. And I don't know that I would want 100 pe- 120 people in my upstairs. This is 2,000 years ago-ish. And they've got this home that's got... Somebody must have had some wealth, I think, to build a home that was structurally sound enough to hold 120 people. Either that or they just prayed over the house before they all went upstairs. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. I, like I said, I'm an engineer. I think about how things are built. and I'm like, 120 people upstairs? That seems scary for the people downstairs. So... Anyway, before we see what they use this room for, notice how long it takes them to get from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. They use a term there called a Sabbath day's journey. This doesn't mean they traveled on the Sabbath necessarily. What it means is it was a a unit of distance. And so a Sabbath day journey was typically understood to be about a thousand yards, which was give or take a half a mile. And so their travel was that long. Just a little note in case you were wondering, what's a Sabbath day journey? Well, that's what it is. It would be like us saying a half mile. So they entered the upper room and the whole gang was back together. It seems that they had all gathered for one purpose and it was because they were told by Jesus and that was the only thing that brought these guys together in the first place to gather and to wait and to pray before the coming of the Holy Spirit that was promised by the Father. All except one, of course, Judas Iscariot. But notice what they did when they arrived. They continued, it says, with one accord in prayer with all who had gathered. This was their purpose for gathering. They came together to pray. To pray as Jesus had instructed them to do and to wait. Prayer is one of the least taken advantage of benefits slash weapons in the arsenal of a Christian. 
I think it's one of the most unsung gifts that God's given us. It's something that I think a few Christians take advantage of to its full potential. We really do not realize what kind of access that we've been granted through prayer. Can you imagine if, if you knew somebody that was at the head of a, an oil company or some sort of company where you had their ear and you didn't take advantage of that connection that you had with them? Maybe, you know, maybe they, you had a business venture you wanted to start and this big company, you had the ear of the, the person that ran all, made all the decisions and you were like, man, if I could just, I'll just talk to that guy and start a business, right? Because they've got some capital and some money. Imagine, if you will, that that was the spot you were in. You're like, you know what? I don't really want to start the business. You know, I, I don't want it that bad. I don't want to talk to somebody about getting some money for it. People would think you were nuts. Like, why wouldn't you do that? You're the best friend of ExxonMobil. Why wouldn't you talk to them? They've got all kinds of money and you can use that. Well, the same thing is, is true about us as Christians. We have all of heaven's blessings available to us if we will only ask our Father. He's our Father. He's, he's, he's expecting us to ask. He sent us out with a mission. He's expecting to have to send provisions. You know, it's just like starting a church. We started this church a year ago. And when I started and we prayed about coming down here in the first place, we didn't consider what it would cost to get supplies or you know, to rent a building or um, to drive down here. But as we saw those things, those needs come up, we started praying. And uh, it took me a while to realize, hey, the way that God does this is He provides where He guides for people to go. So we need to pray. And as we prayed, what was amazing to me is every time there was a need, God provided the money for it. And every time there was a bigger need, he was still God. He was still providing. And so we take so little advantage of that kind of uh, access we've been granted to God. And yet he tells us, come, ask. If you have a need, ask. I'll provide for it. You're my children. But <clears throat> so that's what these men and women were doing. They were praying and their father in heaven, they were asking him for resources to fulfill the mission he's sending them upon. I love what Warren Wearsby said. He's a pastor who uh, writes some biblical commentaries. He said, God shares his power with us as we pray and ask him for his help. And then he said about the book of Acts, he says, throughout Acts, notice that Luke makes a major emphasis on prayer. And he says, the first church was a praying church. I think this is important that we notice this because even this small church, if we don't pray together, there won't be unity. Prayer brings unity amongst people. You might have even heard it said that a family that prays together stays together. And uh, my wife and I, we just marvel at how God's given us unity in some of the circumstances that we've been through. But it's always been through praying together over the specific thing that was going on, even if we couldn't stand each other at the time. We'd go to the other room, we would pray for one another. And then God would fix that, whatever it was. And it was always something silly. Imagine that. But the same is true for churches. And the same is true for the beginning church. As we head into a new season, I was thinking about this as I read this passage. And I'm praying about, since we're starting Sunday morning services, and we, since God's given us a building that we can be in at any point, because we have it all week, we no longer have to you know, just have it for an hour a week, I thought, why wouldn't we start some opportunity for prayer during the week 
so that we could, number one, uh, have unity as a church and not have strife, as often happens, and there will be some, but <laughs> love covers a multitude of sins, right? But then also, we can have an opportunity to intercede for those that we want to reach, those that we know need Jesus that we maybe don't even know what to do about it yet, you know, and God can answer those prayers. So I'm praying towards maybe a, a during the week sometime having an hour where we just have the doors open. If anybody wants to come in and pray, we're going to have that opportunity available. So be praying with me on that. But notice what this does to those involved in prayer because they all have one mission. They all have one person they're serving. They're all heading in one direction. And, and as we pray and as we're seeking God's will, you'll know that God's will doesn't contradict one person's life or the other. You'll have the same mission, but from different angles. And so they were brought together with one accord. That word there, one accord, means with one mind. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, I think, says, Have this same mind that was also in Christ. Not being, uh, I didn't look it up. I need to turn there. Having the same mind that was also in Christ in Philippians chapter 2, I think. Yes, chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes to the believers, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. But having that same mind that was also in Christ, realize that the body of Christ, we are. And that the head of the body of Christ is Christ himself. So when we're praying to God, and we're praying for his will to be done, what we're doing is we're being open to what the brain wants to tell us to do. And then we as joints and as ligaments and as feet and as hands and as arms can all work together for one purpose. And when we're working together for one purpose, we won't step on our own toes. We won't jam a finger when we're trying to do two things at once because we'll have the same common bond that runs everything. And so that's what these guys were doing. They were praying in one accord. But oftentimes I believe people get the wrong idea about God and His people. Even God's people get the wrong idea about what they were, are supposed to be as far as a follower of Christ. Oftentimes they assume that God wants us all to be cut from the same mold and listen to the same music and wear the same clothes. But the reality is, is that God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us to be uniform necessarily. He wants us to be conformed into His image, but He doesn't take away our flavor individually. He's made us who we are. He knows that some people like rock music. And he knows that some people like folk music. And he's even okay with the people that like rap music. But the reality is he's okay with us liking stuff as long as it, as long as it edifies, it builds us up in the faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't draw us away from him. So, but he's not calling us, us all to be each other. That would be boring, right? I think about it this way. God's made us all individuals like snowflakes. You look at a snowflake under a microscope, and many people have taken pictures of these in HD now, and you can see how none of them, no two are alike. But when you see a pile of snow, 
you know there's millions of snowflakes that have made that pile in your driveway that you got to shovel or on your sidewalk or all the way to your car or on the windshield. But when you look at that pile of snow, do you see individual snowflakes? No. You see a pile of snow. You look at it and you go, that's snow. Because they all look alike to the world because, like us, they've been all washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Not the snow, obviously, but we've all been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. We've been washed, made white as snow. So the world, when they look at us, they see all kinds of individuals. But when they see the corporate body of Christ, they should see all the same thing. Those who are desiring to honor and glorify Jesus with our lives and those that are singing His praises for what He's done for them. So while we'll all be different, we'll all be the same, if that makes sense. It's unity and diversity. But before we move to the next verses, I want to mention just real quick in verse 14, this is the last time that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is ever mentioned. And I think it's important to note that in the New Testament, that's the last time she's mentioned. So as highly regarded as some people make Mary, the mother of the Savior, the apostles did not give the slightest indication of feeling the need that she would be a mediator between us and God. In fact, the only mediator between us and God is the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is, no, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So scripturally, if you want to get God's attention, don't talk to Mary, who was Jesus' mom, but talk to Jesus himself. Pray to God the Father by faith in Jesus, and he's the only one through whom we have been granted access into the presence of God. So verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and he obtained a part in this ministry, now this man purchased a field with his wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Demah, that is, field of blood. And then he quotes from the Psalms. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let this man's dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And then he quotes from another in Psalm 109. He says, let another take his office. So what is this about? What's he talking about here? Well, they have this problem uh, that they're facing right away. And it's the fact that there's only 11 apostles now, and there used to be 12. Apparently, this is an issue because you look later and you see in Revelation 21, 14, where it says there are 12 foundations that are built, and they have 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb on them. And so Peter, who is assuming leadership at this point, he points this out and he expresses that the scriptures had to be fulfilled that there would be a betrayer. Jesus wouldn't have been crucified wrongly unless somebody had accused him and given him over to um, the leaders. And so as they had all witnessed take place, they knew about Judas who had betrayed Jesus. They all saw him betray Jesus with a kiss. He brought the guards and he came up and he kissed Jesus on a cheek, signifying that this is the one that I've, you guys have paid me to hand over to you and wrongfully accuse. 
So he recounts the events to the disciples, for anyone who was not aware, I guess, or to refresh their memories, probably a little bit of both. But number one, Judas, after being trained Jesus, he recounts, he hanged himself, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's a contradiction because we just read in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, that his body fell and it burst open. He fell on some rocks and it's a little messy. You know, his, his bowel split open. It's really disgusting, right? So what's the contradiction there? Well, I don't see a contradiction. What I see is two sides of the story. Judas did, in fact, go to hang himself, but he was really bad at it. And so because he was really bad at it, either the branch broke or the rope did, and he fell and he still died. He failed at trying to kill himself. And so it's not really a contradiction. I think it's easily explainable. But then the money that Judas had gained by betraying Jesus, he had then gave, given back to the chief priests and the elders, and they used that money, because remember they said, well, you can't give us that money back. That's blood money. Now it's tainted. Ironically, they were the ones that gave it to him to betray Jesus, right? But then he comes back. He feels sorrowful, not repentant, but sorrowful. He hands the money to them and they said, we don't want that money. That's blood money. Get that away from us. We don't want any part of that. And so they take the money and they purchase a potter's field, according to Matthew 27, verse 7. So Peter is just explaining this. And then he explains that he knows that it was part of the Lord's plan from the beginning. God's still in control. It was part of God's plan for him to be betrayed. Notice, though, that it was Judas' defection and his betrayal of Jesus that caused Peter to ask the disciples to choose another to replace him. It was not because Judas died. A lot of people think that the apostle or the apostolic, I got it, the apostolic ministry was supposed to continue on. And so they think, okay, that still lives on. We replaced them. But the reality is, is that was a ministry just at the beginning. These were men, we'll see in the next two verses, that were with Jesus from the beginning, from his baptism, all the way to the time that he was resurrected and he ascended to heaven. So, <clears throat> but what I want to point out is that Peter's reasoning for wanting to replace Judas was based on scripture. He was reading the scripture and he saw there in Psalm 69 verse 25, that was quoted in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. And then he saw Psalm 109, verse 8, where it says there, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And then he said, let another take his office. But what I want you to notice is that the scripture had to be fulfilled, he says in verse 16, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he says the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. That's an important connection to see because Peter apparently equated the speech of David with the voice of the Holy Spirit at that point in the book of Psalms. This is an example of the biblical teaching that's called inspiration. And it's explained in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning that God breathed it, he breathed it through the people that were listening to him. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in verse 20, 
Peter quoted liberally from the Psalms with knowledge and understanding, but using scripture as the reasoning for replacing Judas, not saying, hey, we need to replace Judas and let's go find a reason in scripture. A text without a context is a pretext. And so his reasoning was that as he was reading scripture, he saw that this was part of God's plan because one of those uh, Psalms there was actually um, judgment of false accusers is what it's called. And so it was kind of penned out early and David probably had no idea that he was writing about how Jesus would be betrayed in the Psalms. He just knew that what he was going through right then, he wanted to be able to write it down and he made songs out of it. But notice that in the quote that ends verse 20, it says, let another take his office. The word there for office is actually episcopin, which is not just another apostle, like a, someone that was sent by Jesus, like we are all called to be, be with Jesus and then be sent by him, but somebody in a specific office of apostle. So I'm running out of time, but let me finish up. Let's read uh, verse 21 through 29 or 26. It says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and then Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. So he gives two requirements. He had to be, have accompanied the disciples from the beginning of Jesus' ministry or his baptism. And he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And then, after the Holy Spirit comes, we'll see a different way of making decisions. But at this point, they cast lots, verse 25. Um... Well, verse 24 said, They prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. And then to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they cast lots, and this was an Old Testament practice. And I'm not exactly sure what it was, but they called it the Urim and the Thummim. And the high priest would have those in his garment. And anybody that wanted to find out what God's will was, they, would, they wouldn't pray, but they would, they would kind of pray in a way. They would go to the high priest or the priest, and he would roll the dice, basically. But they didn't understand it as luck. They looked at it as God directs the dice. And that was the way that God prescribed to make decisions before him. But after the Holy Spirit comes on the church... We don't see this practice anymore. There's no need to roll dice. God says, I'm going to give you my will. I'm going to give you my spirit. And so you'll be compelled by me. <clears throat> and today we're guided by the Holy Spirit through the guidance of scripture. And that's kind of what Peter was doing here. According to Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, it says, Your word, O Lord, is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. And, and we must obey what it says. God guides his people when they're willing to follow. And so if we're open to his leading, you say, okay, that's great, but I'm not going to make decisions like these guys did. I'm not an apostle. Why do I need to know this? How does this apply to me? And that was the question I was asking myself. Well, the reality is, is that 
Oftentimes, we want God to reveal his will to us so that it keeps us from stumbling. I've made many decisions before that if I would have consulted the Lord, sought out his word, I would have saved myself a lot of sorrow and grief, but I didn't. So my example that I have to give for you is, uh, is a personal example, but it was when Kelly and I were dating. And I decided that I had been in a bad relationship, and though we were both Christians, it wasn't what God had for us, but we prayed, and we said, Lord, if this relationship isn't of you, then shut it down, and if it is, then keep it going, right? God sustains it, it's Him doing it. Well, it shut down. And I was like, well, I thought this was God's will, right? And so I never wanted to start another relationship again, to be quite frank. But what the Lord showed me is like, you don't have to worry about whether or not something's my will. What I want you to do is seek out my counsel for my word. Don't lean on your own understanding of things. And so I said, Lord, I want to know if this relationship that I've started with Kelly is going to be a a good relationship, something you've ordained, or whether it's just me dating somebody because I like them. I don't want the wrong person. I've already tried that before and it's hurt me. And so I started reading the Proverbs because it's a book of wisdom. And I was still praying about this particular matter. And so as I was praying about it, I was reading the Proverbs. And one day this this verse stuck out to me in Proverbs chapter 3. And if you've ever listened to me teach at all, you've probably heard it quite a bit. But the Lord spoke it in my life. It wasn't just like I was reading another Bible verse. I knew it was for me at that moment. It was Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, where it says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. So that wasn't a direct answer, right? Is Kelly the one for me? And then He gives me this? That's not the answer I was looking for. I was like, yes or no. But what He gave me was He gave me a principle to live by. He said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Do what I have for you to do. And then if she sticks around, then she's the one. But if not, then she wasn't the one. And that's a very natural way that God supernaturally leads our lives. And that's what these men were doing here. They took a scripture and then they prayed. And then the Lord sorts out the rest. Now, God does this for us, and He's willing to do this for us. But like these men, we have to be willing to pray. We have to be willing to be open to His guiding. And oftentimes I think that we think that we got to do something like stand on our head and pray three times. But I just encourage you, if you've got a big decision you're trying to make in your life, spend a week and pray about it. Number one, if you're not willing to pray a whole week, then do you think that God can trust you with His answer? And number two, if you pray for it, about a week, what you'll find is that God will give you the answer. He'll answer. He's willing to speak to us. We just, he wants to get us to a spot where we'll listen. And so uh, may that be encouragement for you just in your walk personally with him. And then may it be an encouragement also that as a church, I want to start praying, praying for people for salvation, praying that God would continue to provide for us and praying that he would reach people in, in Arcadia Valley as we seek to proclaim the name of Jesus. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are willing to, uh, to hear from us. And Lord, thank you that you desire to have a part in our daily lives. I pray that as we 
look for ways to follow you, Lord, that you would give us your heart for things, that you would give us your desires, Lord, that you would give us your ability, uh, the ability to hear from you. And Lord, uh, when it comes to scripture, I oftentimes lean on the fact that uh, no matter what we're doing, that if we're willing to just read it and to apply it, Lord, that you're going to do amazing things. So Lord, make us those that are set apart to seek your will through prayer and through Bible teaching. Uh, But Lord, more than that, uh, speak to us on the practical things we've been praying about. You know, if there's some in here that are struggling and looking for your answer on big decisions, I pray that you'd give them the ability just to uh, to pray about it and to read your word and to look for you to speak through that natural way of communication supernaturally. Uh, but Lord, thank you for the opportunity to fellowship tonight. Pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you know they would uh, receive you, Lord, that they would maybe talk to somebody or get prayer. Or if there's somebody that's struggling in a particular situation, Lord, uh, let them not leave before they get somebody to pray with them. Uh, but Lord, thank you so much that uh, in all of this, uh, your desire is to bless your servants and to reach the world. And thank you that it's always for our good and for your glory. So Lord, uh, as we sing this last song, I just pray that you would hear our prayers in Jesus' name.